Welcome back, everybody, to I Only Date Monsters, the podcast where queer theory meets queer thirst. I'm noted monster fucker Lunastopheles. And I'm immortal monster fucker Hayden. That is a good title. <laughs> yeah, it felt very, very apropos to this particular it's very, episode. <laughs> it's very apt. Uh, but once again, we have we have come to you through the airwaves to talk about monsters and queerness and things we find hot and also things we find interesting. Yes. And to round out... Uh, <laughs> To round out the Venn diagram of things I find hot and interesting is not quite, but almost a circle. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I was about to ask if you found flat earth theory erotic. No, that's why it's not a full circle. It's everything except flat earth. (laughs) Dear God. Oh. We we don't have time for this, but. No, I. The Flat Earth Theory podcast I listened to just declared that uh, uh, Globe Theory is dead, and I I need to listen to that episode, but I have to emotionally prepare myself before I do. Is this, like, literally a podcast by people who think the Earth is flat? Yes. You have such a... You know, no, we can't get into it because I'm fascinated not just by Flat Earth Theory, but by your obsession with it. And I know that you could talk for literal hours on it. I have talked for literal hours on it. Um, I, I still joke that if I say it, you'll run through a wall. <laughs> like you're the fucking Kool-Aid man of flat earth theory. Yeah, it's it's just endlessly fascinating to me. It's one of those things that... I think there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. And there's stuff like people believing in aliens or people believing uh um there was a cover-up with the jfk assassination and like for those things there's varying degrees of off-the-wallness but at least you can't definitively disprove them but with flat earth theory can you have everyone has it's fascinating to me i love it so much can i tell you that one of my favorite so uh first off hey hayden how are you hey lou i think i just answered that (laughs) that's fair uh retroactively that was hey hayden how are you yes i i i I didn't want to like tramp on that uh Uh, no hey lou how are you (laughs) cool uh i'm okay to respond to your whole flat earth thing uh, and also to return to a topic we had, a, you know, about a month or so ago. Yeah. I watched Godzilla King of the Monsters a couple weeks ago. How was it? So, better than I thought it was going to be. I still have some problems with the politics, but, like, that's that's neither here nor there. That's right. not what I want to talk about. What I do want to talk about is that <laughs> Godzilla, the new Godzilla movies, do pose... That the hollow earth theory is correct. Right. Well. Oh. Which I know, which I know is a lesser theory. (laughs) But I, the way they do it is they have one dude who's like, oh, the, the, the earth is hollow. I know it. I know it. And then when they finally prove it, even though everyone else is like, oh shit. He's like, I fucking told (laughs) y'all. That's the best. I want to come up with an off-the-wall theory that no one believes and be very petty when it's proven correct. 
I have a very specific favorite uh, conspiracy theory. It does involve deciding that child murder didn't happen, so I don't like the reason for it, but I like the I like the theory. Okay. <laughs> so like, there are like a thousand and a half theories about John Benet Ramsey. Do you do you know John Benet Ramsey? I. The name it is might be familiar. A, it's not off right. the top of my head. So it was a really big thing in the '90s about like this young beauty pageant uh, child who was found dead in her somewhere in her parents' house, and so like it was a long thing where they didn't do it, but they probably did do it. Regardless, <laughs> there is a theory that John Bonet Ramsey did not in fact die and is in fact Katy Perry. I'm sorry. Could you could you run that by me again? <laughs> yeah, there's a theory that John Bonet Ramsey didn't die and is Katy Perry. Is so John Bonet Ramsey was a child in the like early '90s. Yes. So age wise, one could make the case. However, Katy Perry was born in 1984, which probably means that by the time she was the age that John Bonet Ramsey was, it just probably wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, probably. However. There is something wild about, like, the world's biggest pop star was once, like, a famous not-murdered child, which, like, sounds weird, but it's the kind of off-the-wall conspiracy theory that I do kind of miss. (laughs) Like, it doesn't pose... It doesn't pose anything to apologize to the parents. It's just like, oh, no, this is just a whole other weird-ass thing happened. Um... Where, you know, like, now we have stuff like QAnon. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not saying that conspiracy theories are good, but at least when they were mostly harmless, I could, like, chuckle at them. Yeah, I mean... I mean, we could... But now they're politics. We could get into uh, a whole debate about what exactly mostly harmless is in the uh, context of conspiracy theories. That's fair. Um... It's, yeah, <laughs> it's a dubious space. Uh, either way, other than that, I'm okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the end. The end. Yeah. Da-da-da-da. Well, the I end. think, yeah, Um. I guess on the topic of uh-huh. celebrities and conspiracy theories, let's get into Death Becomes Her. You, ooh, you nailed that one. Yes. All right, so. This is my, like, third or fourth time watching this movie, so I have some very in-depth thoughts. But I know it's your first time, so I just want to hear your thoughts. Uh, do you want me to give a very brief synopsis of this film? Um, well, I think, because it's surprisingly not complicated. Um, it's not, but, like, just so to give people an overview in case they haven't watched it. Beforehand. Yeah, go, go ahead and hit me with that synopsis. Cool. Death Becomes There is a 1990 film about Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn, two rivals from a very young age, uh, both in love with each other, but that's subtext, but also uh, fighting over one man, Bruce Willis. Uh, Meryl Streep's character is an actor who is past her prime, even in the beginning of the film. (laughs) Uh, And as she starts to try and control her aging, she is... uh, gifted a card to meet with a a very mysterious woman played by Isabella Rossellini, who I could just stare at forever in this movie. She is gorgeous. Right. Uh, Isabella Rossellini has access to potions that give people immortality. Both 
uh, Meryl Streep and Goli Hawn take the potion for immortality, and we find out that it's only for immortality, not for imperviousness. Hilarity ensues. Yeah, and then go um, ahead. That's uh, the, the and then the, the yakety sack songs plays for about an hour until. Look, yeah, the, the second movie. half is the, the second half of the film is a slapstick comedy, and I love it. Uh, anyway, but, go ahead. So the premise, sort of the the premise and inciting instant of this film and the opening scene is what really destroys the suspension of disbelief for me because okay. this is a movie that asks you to believe that Meryl Streep is not a good actress and also that she's not drop dead gorgeous. So, I have a I have a, a I have a counterpoint to that. Okay. Which is a thing that you would only know if you like knew the context of the film being made. Right. And you don't, so I want to give you that context, right? Okay. At this period of time, Meryl Streep was sort of seen in the same way that certain people see Anne Hathaway, which is like a try-hard actor who's like full of herself and thinks she can do no wrong. Right. Like, as much as we all love Meryl Streep now, <laughs> Meryl Streep in the 80s was everywhere, and there was, like, a weird backlash to her. So Meryl Streep taking this role is actually really interesting <laughs> for that reason. Okay, I can definitely see the the sort of context around that. Now, of course, yes. It is, it, it is still a challenge. It is still a challenge to think that she is not already pretty, uh, and that's the problem with Hollywood movies. Yeah, in the narrative, the the film opens up with, I believe it's in like... Uh, 1973. Nine, okay, I was going to say 72. So 73, and it opens on uh, Meryl Streep playing Madeline Ashton. And it's just everybody like leaving this theater in droves. Yes. Like literally crowds of people standing up and leaving as though mm-hmm. this is an insult to them and the worst thing they've ever seen. And then Uh, it cuts to Meryl Streep delivering a very solid musical number. (laughs) It is a very solid musical number, but it's also a very bad musical number. Uh, Again, I'm going to give you context for some of the stuff from this film. Okay, you're the theater kid, so I I was going to ask you about this. So in the early 70s, Broadway was moving away from the big showy musical. Right, right. Uh, the 60s and the 50s were very much this, like, full-on fantasy musical. Everyone's doing great. Uh, and in the 70s, we started getting things like hair. And even stuff where, like, I don't like Andrew Lloyd Webber, but Jesus Christ Superstar was a, a sea change. Where we were starting to see musicals that, that were not the sort of, like, have the full chorus come in and dance with you. And it's it's a, it's... It's all about one person. Uh, we started getting these musicals that were exploring much more communal topics and much more heady topics in the 70s. Right. So Songbird, the musical that they have written a song for for this movie, is meant to be a dying breed of musical. Okay. Um, a, a good context for this, if you ever want to, which I think you should watch, is... Lindsay Ellis's The Death of the Movie Musical, mm-hmm. which, while not exactly the same thing, gets at a lot of the same stuff of, like, how this kind of musical died. Right. So, Meryl Streep is doing 
the performance of being a bad actor, which she like is doing really well because to be a bad act to play someone who is a bad actor means you have to be a good actor. Yes. Playing a bad actor intentionally is one of the hardest roles to ask of someone because there are like three or four levels in that. There, it, it's it's very similar to asking someone to play quote unquote dumb. Yes. Uh, and wa- and there are amazing movies where you watch someone that can play dumb in a way that's still empathetic. Yes. And then there's people that go way too intense with it, <laughs> and you're like, I can't believe you as a as a human anymore. Um. You know, like uh, Amanda Seyfried in Mean Girls, who plays Karen, plays dumb really well. Like she's dumb but she's empathetic like you care about her which is sort of the the really hard line to ride because you could just make them a a punchline the entire time yes Uh, yes exactly cool so that happens (laughs) and then we get to possibly the most challenging sequence in the film yeah they do a bunch of really quick cuts and i understand why but it's basically just uh, oh madeline street no. stealing bruce willis from goldie hahn although oh, that's no. not accurate that's <laughs> right uh the the thing about that i mean the challenging sequences after that i do yeah. love the like madeline comes in immediately just mystifies bruce willis's character and the hard cut straight to like them getting married after <laughs> bruce willis says I will do nothing. Like I will not let her get to me or whatever. It I have very... no interest in her. <laughs> Boom! They're married. It's it's a very good joke to cut with. Yes. <laughs> um. No. The challenging part, and again, this comes with talking about just about any film that was made in the past. <laughs> yes. Is it has some very challenging thoughts on like mental health. <laughs> ah, yes. The. I think I think this is one of the only sequences in the film I actually uh, messaged you about during. Yes, uh, and it's not just like the scene in the mental hospital, but even before that, uh, when we're looking at Goldie Hawn's character in like the 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 depths of depression. Yeah, and she's watching um, a film where someone comes in to kill Meryl Streep, and then pauses, and someone else kills Meryl Streep. Yes, which is. Really funny, is, but... <laughs> so, what's funny is they do a lot of foreshadowing here. Yes. Um, because Meryl Streep, we first see her coming downstairs, and later she dies by being pushed downstairs. Yeah. Uh, Goldie Hawn, who absolutely wants to kill Meryl Streep in this film, doesn't get to. <laughs> Which is also one of my favorite scenes, and we'll get to it. Like, one of my favorite, like, exchanges. And then... Bruce Willis falls to a death, and the first time we see him after, like, he has been married to Madeline for for seven years is fallen out of a chair. Uh, <laughs> also, I should mention that Bruce Willis is playing a plastic surgeon to the stars who then falls to become a mortician to the stars. He is almost unrecognizable in this role. Also, he's just, like, a shout out to the fact that Bruce Willis gets to do some really great physical comedy acting and play in like a very neurotic type character that he would not normally play and does it really well. Yeah. This, this movie definitely makes the case that he shouldn't be only a big action 
person. Exactly. And, like, maybe that was his choice. He didn't want to do too many other comedies, which is unfortunate because he's very good in this. But it, it just goes to show you that sometimes people are good at things that you wouldn't expect them to be. Yes. Uh, so we have we have our players set up. We have this really long the the set of scenes where Goldie Hawn's character is evicted from her house for basically becoming a hoarder, and then there's a scene in the in like a mental institution. It's not like the most sensitive scene I've ever seen, but it's also not, in fact, the worst portrayal of mental illness I've seen in movies. Yeah, especially not in something that is using the mental like using a mental hospital as a punchline as as using it as a set for punchlines i should that say that is fair and i will say that if she's been in there 6 months and all that she has talked about is madeline i can understand some people getting very frustrated by that but at the same time it does seem like maybe you should then give her more one-on-one counseling <laughs> yeah she's she spent all of this time talking about madeline and like she says today i would like to talk about madeline and everyone just wails and moans and like <laughs> stop it stop it <laughs> they're basically the uh the vampire wives from Dracula's harems back in Van Helsing. Yes. <laughs> and I'm um, like, I'm like, okay, you're annoyed, but did no one see this coming? Right. It, again, <laughs> sometimes you can read these movies as just like, ah, and look, the failing of the medical system. <laughs> yes. Isn't it hilarious? But once this is, once this is done, the idea is put into, um, Goldie Hawn's character's head, uh, fucking helen yes is put into helen's head to kill madeline yes and thus we start the movie (laughs) so okay i'm gonna talk about isabella rosalini (laughs) so isabella rosalini is like so i brought this movie for two reasons one because i love it and two because there is a subset of like quote unquote witchy women that exists in in film only, which is the holder of power in a modern day society. It's not a witch in a traditional sense. It's not like the witch from the witch or from Hocus Pocus. It's just a woman who is powerful and has access to magic. It's this sort of slightly deconstructed version of the witch. So Isabella Rossellini lives in a mansion that I don't know how anyone didn't know existed. (laughs) Like everyone at like every. Meryl Streep gets the address and is like, where is this? And I'm like, it's 18 stories tall. <laughs> oh, I want to talk about the architecture in this. Go ahead. This came 40 years later, but uh, Madeline has basically the same house from Sunset Boulevard. Well, wait, that's not Madeline. That's no, Isabella. No, Ro- no I, I know. Um, Oh, oh, Madeline's no, you house do, is... You do mean... Yes, yes. Okay, sorry. Yes, you do mean Madeline. Yes, that makes sense. Which is... Okay. I have to think it's intentional because mm-hmm. it's... The entire layout is almost identical. And Sunset Boulevard, for those who don't know, because it's... Now... It's older. It's like 80 years old almost. It's from 1950. It's about an actress who is an aging 
silent film star that is just refusing to accept the fact that her career is over. Well, very specifically, she cannot make the translation to talkies. Yes. She Um, is coming into a new, like a new era and she is unable to adapt and she is, she is just trying her damnedest to do so. Um, If, if, for our audience, if you have not seen Sunset Boulevard, it honestly holds up pretty fucking well. It's uh, a classic. I, I studied it in uh, my screenwriting class uh, in college, and it is a good example of, um, of film. It's also it's a good example of film. It's a good example of a more feminine noir, uh, because we are very much talking about like the inner, inner emotions of of norma desmond yes um also there is a not great musical adaptation of it but there is a version where glenn close plays norma desmond and it's mm, so good <laughs> but yeah. I, look i get it glenn close can play can play vengeful and weird very well but damn if i don't love it <laughs> anyway but yeah that uh, the architecture of this this whole film feels Mm -hmm. actually pretty intentional. So, yes. So the thing about this film is it was made in, it was made in the late eighties released in 1990. It is pulling from a lot of noir and genre films from the forties, fifties, and even the early sixties. And it's also pulling from like Gothic horror novels of the 1800s. Right. And so we get this juxtaposition of eighties, uh, intense coloring, 1950s style uh, California architecture, which was kind of gothic. Yes. And <laughs> the mood of a gothic novel, you're sort of Rebecca or Jane Eyre or whatever, right? Right. So we have this like really specific melding of all of these pieces of iconography, which make it very weird. Like there's a scene, one of the first scenes with Bruce Willis in like present day. For the movie present day. Yeah. Uh, He is in like his study and there are no less than seven guns on the wall. And there is never a gun. Well, there are guns fired later. But Bruce Willis's character does not seem like the kind of person who would want to collect guns. (laughs) I I definitely noticed those right away. And I was immediately wondering uh, when and how those would come into play. (laughs) Well, it was a shotgun later, but you know. But still, it's like, this movie sets up a very gothic air within the time period it's set in. So, like, 1980 uh, is sort of present day for this film. Well, no. Hold on. 1987 would be, like, present day for the film. Because it starts in 1973, and we jump ahead uh, seven years, and we jump ahead seven more years. Yes. So... And we jump like forty three at the end or something. We yeah we jump to the end of we we jump to the funeral of Bruce Willis. So Isabella Rosalini lives in like a, a monster castle, and <laughs> her character is also pulling from a series of of characters from these sort of like noir and let's be honest the like lesbian pulp thriller book genre. Because if we didn't mention this movie has a lot of really intense lesbian energy oh my god it has such strong lesbian energy (laughs) like it it suffuses this entire film so isabella rosalini i'm going to encourage you to look up 
any shot of Isabella Rossellini from this film. <laughs> but when she first shows up, she is wearing a red sarong from the waist down, and her top is just jewels. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's 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 one of the most like uh, like I just could stare at her outfits forever. <laughs> I could stare at her forever. She is doing this like brilliant amount of very slight overacting because yes. Isabella Rossellini, amazing actor, in this because she is pulling from like the Spider Woman trope, is. Doing just a little bit of heightened stuff, but oh god. The scene where she <laughs> The scene where she sits down and asks Meryl Streep to guess how old she is. <laughs> right, and, and Meryl, Meryl Streep's Streep like um 38? Oh, 28, and then just with the with pure confidence, Isabella Rosaline just leans and goes, I am 71 years old. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, yes. Also, I love that she has helpers that are just, like, wrestlers. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, they're just, like, <laughs> shirtless boxer dudes. Or, like, guys wearing tank tops. Also, they're named Tom, Dick, and Harry, which is my of favorite course. dumb joke. Is that they were probably written as Tom, Dick, and Harry in the script just because they didn't have names. And then when they got to the time where they would go to, like, change the names, it's like, oh, that's a good joke. <laughs> Because this this movie is like darkly funny in a very specific way, but also, and it's a good time to, for me to bring up my theory here about this. Death becomes her should ex- should be examined in the same space as like Cronenberg body horror films. There is a lot of cross section between body horror and body humor, and which is which is a weird thing. It was. Uh, I saw there were some very objectively funny scenes, um, like when when Meryl Streep first falls down the stairs, and it's revealed that she's still alive, and she gets up, but her neck is on backwards. Mm-hmm. And this is like Robert Zemeckis right after they did Who Framed Roger Rabbit, so you can see some of the animation techniques being used again. Yes. But just like in a more realistic way. But also, when she is pushed down the stairs because she has driven, uh, she has driven Bruce Willis... To the, to the breaking point, which, quite honestly, yes. <laughs> uh, I also love that they extend the amount of shots of her falling down the stairs to where it becomes an absurd amount. <laughs> well, she's balancing on the edge of the stairs for literally 30 seconds, just mm-hmm. waving her arms wildly. Yeah, she she's, she's full coyote time at that point. And then, like, they keep... She falls down the stairs long enough <laughs> that it would be three times the stairs yes. if it was the normal amount of shots. Like, it is on purpose extended and, like, made larger. And, man, also, Meryl Streep getting to be, like, the most vicious human is so nice to watch. She's so good at it. She's good at everything, right? Yes. It's it's a lot of fun. I One of my favorite lines from her is when she is, uh, before she's taken the uh, immortality potion. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's meeting up with one of her. We later find out uh, many men that she is sleeping with. Yes, uh, and it's a younger man, and he has a woman over, and he's like stammering for an excuse as to why this woman is visiting, and she basically just like yells at him, "Oh, for Christ's sake, at least lie to me quickly." 
<laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> Which is one of the best jokes in the film. It's a, it's it, the, it, the the writing in this film is snappy and superb, and a lot of it is not quotable because some of it is just like physical actions. Uh, but man, it's just a it's a very good line. I love it, that line. There's also a lot in the delivery of it. She does it much better than I ever could attempt to. But yeah, I mean, it's a movie worth watching because you're gonna watch four four really good actors act really well in really over the top ways. Yes. Um, because like also. We've been talking a lot about Meryl Streep and about Bruce Willis. Goldie Hawn is great as the sort of, like, antagonist in this film. Goldie Hawn is not the antagonist in this film. Well, she's, Goldie she's Hawn not, is perfect. She's not actually the antagonist, but, like, she acts as our antagonist for the first half of the film, you know? But before Bruce Willis, in a fit of anger, kills Meryl Streep, he and Goldie Hawn discuss how they're going to get rid of Madeline. Yes, and you can tell that this is, like, very much someone who has thought about this for 14 years. Because Goldie Hawn's plan to get rid of Madeline is both so exact and so convoluted. <laughs> I, I also love... This movie has a lot, of, a lot of scenes of people, like, practicing their reaction for when they see someone, which is something I deeply relate to. <laughs> but it opens with her being like, is Madeline here? Like, she she bangs on the door, and Bruce opens the door, and she's like, is Madeline here? And he says, no, no, she's out. And she just enters... She, she, she enters so dramatically, and she's like, oh, thank goodness. And I'm like, you just asked to see her. Like, it's raining, and she has this obnoxiously large umbrella, and the minute that he says that Madeline's not home, she just tosses it. <laughs> Fully open, just like throws it behind her and walks in. So, so I can't do justice to the like, here's how we're going to kill Madeline scene, but it's off the wall. It involves poisoning every wine glass <laughs> uh, or one of every wine glass. But after and, Bruce... and my favorite thing about the plan is um, after after in the plan, Madeline dies from the poisoned wine glass. Included in the plan is the line, first we finish dinner. Right. I, it's, first we're going to do this because we're hungry. <laughs> we have to move fast. First we finish dinner. But so after, after all this, after Madeline is quote unquote killed. Yes. Uh, Bruce Willis calls Goldie Hawn up on the phone and it's just like, I did it. And like goes on this ramble about how he did it and didn't think he could do it. And we cut to Goldie Hawn, who is like in her in her like hotel room and has like posted all of these like pictures of Madeline with her eyes crossed out and stuff. Yeah. And it's the smallest scene. And she just goes, what part of the plan didn't you understand? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of my favorite line deliveries in the movie because it gets across so much of just like, you killed the thing. I was going to do it. <laughs> like it's very much. She wants to say you fucking idiot. I was supposed to kill her. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> Now that now that Meryl Streep is dead but alive, yes, uh, Bruce Willis's powers of being powers Bruce Willis's <laughs> knowledge Bruce of Willis's being, power of being of spending a lot of time with dead people kicks in. Yes, and so he gives Meryl Streep a full zhuzh, as it were, and then 
And then we we have Goldie Hawn come back to the house, and is just like fucking ready to kill Madeline. This or like ba- bury Madeline because she thinks Madeline's dead. There is basically a... from the time that uh, Madeline is pushed down the stairs is when the yakety sax music starts playing and never stops. It never uh, stops. Though I will say there is a point where Madeline comes down the stairs now, not alive but not dead, and. There is a scene where she addresses Madeline and walks away. And she moves like a fucking great white shark. <laughs> it is a it is a straight there is no bobbing to her walk. She walks straight to Madeline, says something to her and turns and moves. And she's going to get a gun. Yes. But it is it is so mass like it's just a masterful little moment because the camera works to make it to where Meryl Streep's face is basically always in center frame. <laughs> so it, it feels very uncanny. And she's wearing this, like, white sh- uh, coat with l- giant lapels. So she kind of looks like a great white shark at the same time. Yes, I do love that coat. Um... It's a very, <laughs> it's a very it's, good coat. It's so large, and I can't even describe it. It's like this thick white fabric with, like, not rhinestones, but there's, like, something in there that gives it some sparkle yeah it has like a metallic thread or something yeah uh, so meryl streep shoots goldie hawn yes and she falls into the pool yes and we have this extended sequence where you know they're gonna basically go bury her in the desert and uh, bruce willis is gonna keep madeline looking great forever and then goldie hawn gets up <laughs> with a hole through her stomach a perfectly which, circular hole. Which, yeah, of course would not happen. But again, this is a fucking cartoon with live action. Uh, and thus starts, honestly, one of the best fight sequences in film. Goldie Hawn picks up uh, a pair of shovels, which she was going to use... To bury Madeline. Yeah, no. She was going to use those to bury Madeline. And then Madeline was going to use those to bury her. And so she picks up the shovels and she just tosses one to Madeline and basically unguards her. Though she does get a pot shot in beforehand. And one of the things I love, and again, slapstick movie, the idea that these two women are now immortal but not invincible, which is just a great, a great caveat to this sort of story, right? Right. Meryl Streep, her joke sort of sent her around for a while, the fact that her neck keeps breaking. <laughs> So, we skipped over a scene which is very funny, which is where they go to the doctor. <laughs> oh yeah, I... and the and the doctor just has a fucking existential crisis and dies. <laughs> yes, they... <laughs> she murders a doctor by being dead and then passes out. And yes. so the nurse who comes in thinks she's dead and puts her in the morgue. <laughs> oh right, also the morgue. She's gonna be furious. <laughs> <laughs> There's also. They it's also put some nuns on roller skates for this scene, and I don't know why, but I appreciate it. It's it's such a weird gag, and I love it. Um, also, the morgue is basically another room in one of these houses. Like, it's giant, and it's green marble. Like I said, I love the architecture in this movie. It's all... It's gothic. It's as, almost agoraphobic. It really is. It's, it's gothic in a very Reaganomics way. Mm-hmm. Which I which I like I love because these are not characters we're supposed to really 
like so much as just enjoy watching. Uh, yeah, around the around the two thirds mark, um, after the the women have figured out that Bruce can keep them young looking forever, even though they're functionally dead. Yes, and they they kidnap him, and he possibly the least sympathetic person in this film becomes the hero in the third act for no reason. Well, the yeah, uh, I mean, what, what from, we do, from the what, perspective of the movie, I think. Yes. I, yeah, I think the movie uses Bruce Willis a lot to talk about, like, living your best life while you're here, uh, which is, you know, it has a, it has a, think, it has a, the movie has uh, a point of view, and I don't think it's an entire entirely a bad point of view i don't know if i'd want this version of immortality i mean but, i don't i i do kind of agree with uh willis's character i don't know that i'd want any version of immortality yeah i have different feelings but that's beside the point i i mean good good longevity maybe but yes i i that's that's what it comes down to forever is a long time <laughs> yes so anyway during this fight scene Meryl Streep, for, like, half it, has to hold her head up because, again, her head gets, like, smashed into her neck. <laughs> and so, like, she she's doing this scene where she keeps talking and her, her head will fall forward, uh, which is, you know, great acting on her part. And so, for half it, she's just, like, holding her head up by her hair. Meanwhile, Goldie Hawn, still with stomach, with the hole in her stomach, gets one of the best physical comedy moments. At some point, one of the shovel breaks. One of the shovels break, and so Meryl Streep oh, throws it like a javelin, a... <laughs> and it like shoves into the couch. And we leave that for a bit. I love Meryl Streep's reaction to that, though, because she's she she raises her hand and cheers like she just made a shot oh. in basketball, and then she's like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> right. So technically, what happens is she throws it, and it goes through. Helen's stomach hole and like right into the couch. And so she cheers because like, oh, yes, I did it. And like, oh, shit. No, wait, there's nothing there. <laughs> it's very good. But later, like maybe five minutes later, the two women have actually communicated with each other. Fallen in love. Yes. Yeah. Basically fallen in love, fallen in, fallen in friendship love. And Goldie Hawn sits down and sits down around that spike sticking out of the couch again. In such a casual way. <laughs> it's just like, yep. <laughs> I, I, I have a hole in my body and I'm just dealing with it. Uh, so, yes, the third the third act of the film now is trying to get Bruce Willis to take a potion as well. Yes. Uh, and my roommate actually has a very interesting theory about and this. This is the second time we've seen the unboxing video of the potion. Yes. Uh, much shorter, very quick, and my roommate has a theory about this. Yes. Isabella Rosalini's character doesn't give a shit about Meryl Streep or Goldie Hawn's character in this film. And in fact, she is only giving them the immortality potions, or specifically uh, Meryl Streep's character is only giving the immortality potion to get to Bruce Willis's character because Bruce Willis could be the plastic surgeon for the elite immortal forever. Right. Um, Which is something she talks about a lot of her clients wanting. Yes. And so we get the scene now where Bruce Willis is being given the potion 
and he almost drinks it. He almost does it. But then he gets his nice little speech about like living forever being terrible uh, and keeps the potion. Yes. And runs away. And here we get one of my another thing I love that they do with this movie. Because this movie is full of a lot of people that are known for being good actors in one way, shape, or form, it likes to put them in situations where they have to do what they're good at in a bad way. And so we get an action scene with Bruce Willis where he has to be <laughs> bad at being in an action scene. Yes. Because he tries to escape this castle <laughs> and mm. he's crawling across a roof, but he has to do it in a way that a fucking schmuck would do it. Yeah, he just, he gets on the roof and he basically falls down the shingles and catches uh, catches the drain and just like swings out over this open courtyard. No, and then yeah, just like uh, Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn show up and... I'm not calling anyone by their characters' names anymore. <laughs> that's that's fine. That's totally fine. I stopped um, doing it. And they're they're basically like, you have the potion, you're about to fall to your death. I mean, this is really the put your money where your mouth is moment of okay, I know you don't want to be that kind of immortal, but do you want to die right now? Because those are your two options. And he decides to die, except conveniently he falls through a glass ceiling and into the pool again. Yes, because uh, everyone has to get wet in this movie. It's true; everyone it's does have the to get law. wet. So, basically, at this point, the movie comes to a close. We cut ahead to Bruce Willis's character's funeral, where <laughs> we're. Turns out that he had six kids after the age of 50. Holy shit. Yeah, which is like a fucking wild thing. He basically has a change of heart and becomes like a like a, a lifestyle guru for living in the moment. Uh, and we have Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep in the back of the church just like cackling. Yeah. At this entire uh, funeral. One of them, you know, they've like, okay, cool. We'll we'll be together forever, and we'll make sure that we don't we don't age. I, I really appreciate that. Thirty, forty years down the line, these two women are still together and still just like miserable with each other. So catty towards each other. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, the film ends with them tripping on a can of spray paint because that's what they use to keep the color in their cheeks mm -hmm. and both of them falling apart into bits just like actual bits on the steps of a church and the very last line in the film is goldie hawn's head saying to meryl streep's head do you remember where you parked the car <laughs> so we have gone through the movie i want to talk i want to go circle back to the body horror thing because it is not just that this movie gets into the horror of like, like the body horror in the sense of like your body being immortal, but not impervious. Like that's one thing. It also just honestly gets at the fact that <laughs> to live in a body that slowly decays over time is a horrific experience. Yes. And it, it, doesn't, um... <laughs> it doesn't posit that the characters in this movie make good choices, but it does posit that, within a system that cares a lot about not showing the signs of aging, these are the lengths that someone could go to if available 
in a system where that's sort of encouraged. It, it definitely makes the case that they, they choose specifically Meryl Streep's character, because um, we don't see Goldie Hawn taking the potion. We just see her before and after. Mm-hmm. But um, Meryl Streep, we get a scene of her going to her, her cosmeticist and being like, like talking about a surgery that you're only supposed to have once every six months, but that supposedly keeps you young looking. And her really, really pushing on this um, this poor nurse or whoever to be like, I know I'm not supposed to take it, um, but I'm rich and I need to look young. It's important to me to look young. So mm-hmm. do it. Listen to me. <laughs> and it, it, it's, it's interesting because these are not good characters, but in a way the script doesn't entirely blame them for the problem. It's not, look at these two vain people. It's, look at these people caught in a system that actively wants them to hate themselves. Yes, I mean, we we see plenty of examples why Meryl Streep would feel that way. Like, we just, we see... <laughs> it's it's not a great scene for her, technically, but we do see the one of the men that she's having an affair with cheating on her this this whole movie would be a lot simpler with polyamory let's just be real uh look i have said this many times many things would be a lot simpler if characters were were at least non-monogamous like movies pop songs tv shows (laughs) (laughs) so this movie gets at that like the body horror of just like having something that you can't really affect but since it's out of your control, it's hard not to want to affect it. Yeah. Like, I don't think this movie ever truly blames the idea that aiming to be beautiful is bad. It's that the level that we put on people to be beautiful can be literally mind-breaking. <laughs> yeah. The, the pressure to stay young forever... Mm-hmm. even when that's impossible is is overwhelming i did, did it... clock something interesting about age in this yeah. film actually i i went went back and looked at the cast and uh when this movie was released uh when this was released mm-hmm. meryl streep was 43 years old yep and goldie hahn was 47 mm-hmm and Bruce Willis was a full decade younger at 37. Wow. He is the oldest looking person in this film. Yeah, he always... By has, a mile. He has always looked old. He also, like... There's a thing I love, which is that they very specifically put a bit of extra makeup on his 5 o'clock shadow to make it an aggressive 5 o'clock shadow. Oh, it's so bad. <laughs> like... And it's clearly done on purpose because, again, this is pulling from a lot of, like, noir and very melodramatic films uh, where makeup levels are off the fucking charts. Uh, Yeah. And so he looks like a corpse for most of the film. (laughs) And I think that, you know, of course it's on purpose, but, like, it's it's a very good choice. But he does look a full decade older, hmm, a full decade older than everyone else in this film. Yeah, and he is the... The, the youngest baby. by five years, five to ten. The baby. Uh, man, I just. <laughs> so okay, 
I think we have been a bit um, soft on the queer thirst part during uh, during this month. Yeah, but I would a hundred here. <laughs> right, I would a hundred percent let Isabella Rossellini in this film do fucking whatever she wanted to me. <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> like she lives. It is lavish, but there is something very not in your face about it. Like she makes statements, not not gives you a screed when it comes to her her opulence. Uh, and also, you know, she has a fucking sex dungeon. <laughs> you know, you know that Isabella Rossellini has an immortal sex dungeon. I. She probably has an immortal sex dungeon, but that's that's sort of like not giving her credit for the fact that she has. Also, just like a sex room on every floor. Oh, she also has that, of course, but those are different themes. Yes. Right? Yeah. A sex dungeon is a very specific kind of sexual place. <laughs> the ones on the higher floors are like, oh, this one's all, you know, all silk or whatever. But she's going to have a fucking dungeon. Oh, yeah. That's she true. Live, That's she lives fair. in a castle. She moves with the spring. She's never seen a, an autumn or winter in her life. Which is also a very, like... That's that's a thing about age. That's yeah. a good line. <laughs> it is. Uh, and then, man, her outfits in this film. She only gets a couple, but, like, her, like, post... First off, her bathing suit is just a scarf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I really I really enjoyed that scene where she was getting out of the pool. And, like, one of her her manservants comes over and like puts a robe on her and she like dries herself with the robe a little bit and then takes the robe off. (laughs) What I love about Isabella Rosalini's character in this film is she, she exudes power in a way where she is almost always not nude, but like very much in revealing outfits, but they are, they feel so much like she doesn't feel vulnerable. No, God, no. She is literally going to, like... I mean, she stabs people to show them that the magic works. But she, I love that her line before that is, I'm not going to bite. Right, and then, pff, stab. <laughs> Which, Ow. accurate, I guess. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's very good as just, like, a line and a line reading. But this movie takes the idea of the human body... And doesn't actually demonize it. Like, she is sexy, but she is powerful in a way that goes beyond just the fact that she is sexy. She just appreciates the fact that she has a body that is 25 at all times. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Um, and, like, there, there is something really interesting in the fact that this is a movie made in 1990 that really didn't have to have a progressive... St- I think it should... But it really didn't have to have a progressive stance on, like, women's sexual autonomy. <laughs> uh, no, but does. Um, I think so, yeah, at least. Uh, Goldie, Goldie Hawn's whole speech about uh, basically claiming her sexuality, which she's doing to try to steal Bruce Willis back from Meryl Streep. But it's still a good speech. <laughs> yeah. I mean... She, she talks about how... And like this is this is sort of the flip side of of talking about the the desire to stay forever young is that we see when we first see Goldie Hawn, Goldie Hawn has the worst wigs in this movie. 
when we first see her, she really she does has... like that. Even even the wig she wears while <laughs> hot is like, it's not great. That was a choice. She she looks beautiful, but the hair isn't great. But... Yeah, it, it it it's not the best choice, and I I don't know if that's on purpose or not. But like, woo. But yeah, Girl. when we first meet her, she is very like mousy and and moppish, and her hair is cut into like flat bangs, and she wears <laughs> very dull clothes. And Th- then those flat bangs. Yes, flat bangs. They they are very flat bangs. Oh boy, but like I said, worst wigs. Yes, but we see her after she takes the youth potion, and. It's not just her physical appearance that has changed. She is confident now. Mm-hmm. Like, she, she is moving with a confidence that you can only have when you want to murder someone. <laughs> that is... That is true. And girl wants to murder. Girl is thirsty for murder. Thirsty for murder! <laughs> okay, so... So which which soda soda brand would have that as the best tagline? Thirsty for murder, or like energy, like whatever. What drink should I, that be the tagline for? Um, hmm, hmm. I I feel like Mountain Dew would try. Mountain Dew is a good one because they would try to do it like Thirsty for Murder, play God of War seven. <laughs> Or something. Um, sorry, I know the new God of War was actually pretty good. I just don't... That was the first thing that came to mind that wasn't Call of Duty. <laughs> Mountain Dew is famously what... Um, what Call Dick of... bags drink while they play PvP. That Yeah, it's true. Which, like, to be fair... It's not like the best soda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I... I don't want to save it. It's just like... Now, to you know, I will say this: I do like some Baja Blast. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had it. You have to like go to a Taco Bell, which is the first problem. I know. Well, I mean, I say that I, as so, I say that as if I have not eaten my fair share of Taco Bell over the years. Like, I'm not sinless. <laughs> Taco Bell is one of those things where, like, sometimes you don't want to feel good about your life choices. I was making this point recently in regards to eating fast food at all. And I was saying, look, sometimes you were on, say, like a necessitous road trip, like you're driving 12 hours somewhere and you don't want to have to think about food. You just know you need it. And there is. It's not good for you, but I will eat McDonald's on the road because you know what? Sometimes you just have to survive. (laughs) McDonald's. Sometimes you just have to survive. Could be their tagline tomorrow. Sitting across the street from Taco Bell, thirsty for murder. (laughs) Taco Bell, thirsty for murder. (laughs) Don't, don't tempt them. Uh, They just... Side note, and I'm sure our audience is mostly people who also listen to McElroy content. Uh, so, on the most recent live episode, there was a Munch Squad about Taco Bell basically letting people bet. 
Oh, I saw that. And like, yikes. Oh, Taco Bell, what are you even doing? Uh, I would say they're best, but no. <laughs> Look, some sometimes what you need to do is your worst. Um, so anyway, but do you have any other thoughts I, on this film? I I think that's everything. Mostly, I just have. Oh, uh, of course, yeah. Meryl yeah. Streep. Meryl Streep's line entering in, "Kiss me on the what now?" <laughs> oh yes. Um, lots of, lots of unresolved sexual tension between those two women. It it truly is like they clearly want to bang. Uh, and that's not just me reading into it. Uh, this movie is high camp. And, you know, my last thing about this film is the thing that stuns me the most about it is it does not feel like this should be the cast that was in this film. And not because they're <laughs> not good, but because this feels like a movie that would be made on the cheap by, like, a first-time director, not by Robert Zemeckis. This... Like this movie film ha- is playing above its weight class. Yeah, I don't know how this script got to the people it got to, and I'm not saying this is bad. Like we didn't get a bad film because it wasn't an indie film, but like it it has the energy of a film that should have been for lack of a better term a series of nobodies. Like, I mean, this this could have been someone else's breakout role if if three different actors had given these performances mm. but these were already established people like right it's amazing all four of them all four of our main players in this film are well-established actors in their own right before this and this film has such a scrappy low i say low budget but like it's not low budget but it has the feeling of like a but i'm a cheerleader or heathers or something where like people were not in their sort of career prime is doing this they were mostly at the start of their uh, start of their careers, it yeah. feels like a movie that literally should have people you've never heard of before in it, or at least at the time, <laughs> no one would have heard of. Yeah, it's, it's it's just a very strange. It's a good strange. It's just very strange that this movie was made with this cast. I mean, I had never seen this movie before, and this was a fun time. But it's also not super surprising to me that I hadn't seen this before. Yeah. I mean, I sorry, I don't say that in the way of, like, yeah, because you're sheltered or whatever. But, like, yeah, this is a movie where, unless you are already keyed into certain spaces, it just might not cross your radar. Yeah, no, I had I'd never even seen much of this at all before. I think, I feel like there must be, like gifs out there on the internet of just like reaction images from some of these scenes maybe if nothing else i definitely have sent you one or two over the time over the years year but years years literal years Years. uh but but yeah (laughs) yeah so that was death becomes here and that was that 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 brings uh that, that brings queer lust month and which month to a close yes uh it was nice. It was nice getting to explore an archetype from a couple different angles. And we should do this again sometime. Yeah, we'll definitely do this next year, I think. I really like the idea of of ne- October being our our month to drill d- drill down on like Excuse one me. on like one one archetype. Yes. One thematic idea. 
But I think there might be uh, other opportunities throughout the year. I mean, you know, let us know what you think. Yeah. If, if you want us to do more more themed months, let us know. Yeah. And remember, it doesn't have to just be like an archetypal monster. It can be exploring a, a theme. We could do a couple different things around the idea of turning into a monster. Because that's always fun. And then we could watch District 9. <laughs> that... That movie has been on my list for so long. I want oh, to see that. It's very good. Um, anyway. Hey, Hayden. Hey, Lou. What's next week on the gay agenda? Well, next week we are finally leaving Queer Lust Month behind. But that doesn't mean we're leaving Queer Lust behind, because next month we are talking about Bram Stoker's Dracula. Not the... Okay, uh, let's be clear here. <laughs> Not the movie starring Keanu Reeves. No. Specifically <laughs> Bram Stoker's novel, yes. Dracula. Man, that movie, though. I... He's trying so hard. Anyway, yes, we're going to talk well, about Dracula. A, a we book get that... to meet back up with the wives and with Van Helsing and, and a the very, whole crew. A very different Van Helsing. A uh, very, very different story. And more so, one that just out of the gate has a lot more male on male attraction than I thought there would be. Oh, I've, I haven't finished my reread of it yet, but yeah, I mean, I'm Dracula only like, comes on hard. I'm only 10 chapters in and I'm just like, Dracula's thirsty and not just for blood. Dracula's thirst is literally his defining character trait. I know. Anyway, we'll get into that more next week. Next week. If you would like, to talk to us about Death Becomes Her or Witches or Dracula or literally whatever, you can contact us in a a, a lot of different ways. <laughs> uh, on Twitter, we are at IODM Podcast. On Mastodon, we are at I Only Date Monsters at monsterpit.net. And if you want to uh, reach out to us through email, uh, you can always contact us at I Only Date Monsters at gmail.com. And you can send messages of that aren't character limited there. Yeah, it's really great. You it, have like full access to paragraphs. Uh, if you have a dissertation on Death Becomes Her, I want to read it. Same. <laughs> That's not a joke. Same. There's a lot of really interesting stuff that could be. I, I I'm having fun watching these movies again. Uh, not just this, but all the movies we've been doing for this show, more or less, because I'm. It now just lets me appreciate very small things and i'm getting much more nuanced ideas on these films which is what happens when you engage in something multiple times if you want to reach me directly you can reach me either on twitter or on mastodon on twitter i am at lunastopheles and on mastodon i am at lunastopheles at snout sun online and if you want to reach me directly you can um you can't <laughs> That's all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that yeah, you just can't. You just can't. The how I reach Hayden directly is a fucking miracle. It involves multiple carrier pigeons. It does. Uh and at least one of those carrier pigeons will always have a note that says There we go. Live live forever, but die inside all the time. <laughs> that one's too real. I know. Bye.